Introducing Mortgage Matters. He has no idea how bad it is out there. He has no idea. A show dedicated to helping you navigate a challenging and ever-changing financial and real estate landscape. The economy continues to face numerous difficulties. Now, your hosts, Dan Podesto and Jason Grody of Central Coast Lending. The fact that you're being called upon to help clean up Wall Street's mess is an outrage. Broadcasting outrage. live from the KVEC studios in San Luis Obispo. What economy are you talking about? Talking it's about time for Mortgage Matters. Well, good morning and happy Saturday to you. It's first show of October. So happy to be with you on this toasty weekend. Very toasty. Feels chilly in here. <laughs> it's comfortable in here. Sure. In our nice re well repainted. We're getting there. Yeah, we're the getting remodeled there. studio. The remodel's on, underway. Yeah. Starting to look really good in the hallway. I love that. Color. I can't wait for yeah. that to yeah. work its way inside here. Yeah, it, it it eventually will. It eventually will. So there you go. Uh I wanted to tell you do I sound funny? No. No? Not even a little funny? I mean you always sound a little funny. <laughs> no, you sound you sound there we go. Let's go with Perfect normal. to me. There it is. You just turned you up. You sound normal. You turn up I turned up my headphones. So like, man, oh no, I'm talking normal, but I sound really quiet. Yeah, there you are. Uh, I heard yesterday, Dan, that um, somebody said they listened to the show and said that one guy is really nice. That one guy sounds really nice. <laughs> Which guy was that? Not the guy that talks all the time. Uh. So nice. that was you. So you got a compliment. Hey, that's cool. I feel pretty nice most of the time. <laughs> it was somebody from the California Pizza Kitchen oh. makes a point to listen to your show every week. Cool. Yeah. So there's that. That's good. I can't believe it's already October. And uh, we, with the first week of the month, every month, it's always a, a time where we just are processing the jobs report. Um Pretty volatile week again, huh? Um, from Syria, Ukraine, Hong Kong, Ebola. We're we're making the rounds here. Um, saw the the Dow lost that momentum, got below seventeen thousand. I don't think it made it back over seventeen thousand yesterday. Did you see, Dan? I didn't see. No. No. You seem disinterested. There was a lot of baseball on yesterday, so it was hard to not watch all those <laughs> exciting baseball games as I was sweating in my office. You know, because it never gets hot in Morro Bay, so I was just sitting there cooking in 90-degree um, indoor weather. It was, it was really oh. nice. So, But, yeah, um, I know the, the unemployment report was pretty exciting this week, but before we d dive into all these serious topics, I thought um, uh. just starting with a little some, something funny would would be a good way to start the show, right? That's how the the pros do it. They lead in with some humor, if, and then they hit you with the, the real stuff. If you're fixing to say something about the angels, don't. <laughs> if, that, hey, if you want to go ahead and get into the jobs report, we can. <laughs> I think the A's just <laughs> laid the blueprint out for you guys. Eesh. Yeah. Um, All right, no, I thought I, th there was a, a humorous story that hit the news uh, about midweek, maybe it was later in the week, and it was uh, about our old Fed chairman, Ben Bernanke. Remember him? Yeah. Before you tell this whole story, um, I want, yeah, two things. First of all, one of my favorite things was um, Greenspan, right? Remember Greenspan? About three years after everything was just going haywire, he goes, 
I didn't even know there were those kind of loans like at all said, that they existed. Yeah, he's like, I had no idea there were that <laughs> many subprime loans being originated. So that's one thing I think is funny. <laughs> our our old chair and now okay, so Bernanke. Um, before you tell this whole story, I just want to say <laughs> this is drive-by media, dude. This is totally what you get out of a headline and a fun little story. So we may have... Uh, Are you suggesting it's not true? We may have come up with different opinions about it, but I want to hear your your uh, your summation of the story. Okay. The, um, this is, I guess, secondhand information here. The, federal, the former Federal Reserve Chairman was at a conference on Thursday. Will you start with your headline, though? What's your headline? <laughs> former Fed Chairman Bernanke turned down for mortgage refinance. Go. <laughs> <laughs> so he was at a conference in Chicago on Thursday, and he was speaking with the moderator. And he said, just between the two of us, I recently tried to refinance my mortgage, and I was unsuccessful in doing so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's funny. Okay, so I'm going to say it's drive-by media for two reasons. Number one, um, first of all, Dan... Let's talk about changes in employment when you're applying for a loan. <laughs> True. Uh, yeah. The dude just went from wage earner to self-employed without a two-year history. I mean, granted, it's Ben Bernanke, but this doesn't fit under Fannie and Freddie Mac. You can't, Fannie and Freddie Mac. You can't go from I was. Uh, a police officer yesterday to I own a used car lot today or I'm even opened a tactical supply store you don't have a proven history of income so dude stepped down as the chair and uh what's he doing now he's giving speeches doing book deals walking around you know so now he's been Bernanke schedule C self-employed self proprietor doesn't qualify man I'm actually kind of glad to know that there but the guidelines apply to him yeah, also. Yeah, <laughs> let them apply to all of us. Enough people have been denied for credit. But secondly, um, so this stuff becomes, I don't know. I mean, somewhere along the way, he must have offered it up. But um, Mr. Bernanke refinanced his mortgage for his fancy little house on Capitol Hill. Um New loan in 2004, 839 grand. Refied it in 2009 and again in 2011. Um, he's got a pretty good rate. What's this dude need to be doing like four refinances every few years? He needs to go get himself on like the Dave Ramsey course here and figure out how to just take care of bills. Maybe he's just trying to access equity to, to buy that vacation. Now he's, you know, he's... belly aching in public that he can't get his like fifth refi on his house. <laughs> so, how about a little stability, Ben? Work at the same company for two years and we'll be happy to give you a loan. Uh, how old is Ben Bernanke? He looks like he's about 50. Come on. Five? You get to be the Federal Reserve Chairman at age 55? I'll... I don't think so. Um, one of my favorite new pages is called Let Me Google That For You. Okay. I got to believe, so my point was going to be that I, I believe he's probably at an age where he can start taking money out of a retirement plan and um, and show some income that way without necessarily <laughs> counting his employed income or his self-employed income. Oh, he's 60. Okay. I, I was off by five years. You wow. made him sound like he was like 91. Wow. He's a lot. Yeah, man. 
See, wow. he is young, so he, he is, can't even take a draw yet from his yeah, retirement. Yeah, he can't. All right, yeah. I'm so. sure he could qualify for one of the asset depletion programs, though. Right. How rich is this guy? There's a way to make this work. Yeah. The funny thing is, is it's it, you can't wait to say the dude that just spent you know the last half decade trying to thaw the credit markets was declined for a loan. Um, so when the audience laughed, <laughs> he says, "I'm not making that up." No. This really happened. I think it's entirely, I, I think it's entirely possible that lenders may have gone a bit too far on mortgage credit conditions. Yeah. Hmm. Really? Do you, Do you agree? You? I don't know that I agree. <laughs> I'm I think, not positive. I, I think it's prudent. It makes a lot of sense. It's prudent lending to look at someone's tax returns and make sure they've been self-employed for a decent period of time. And whenever somebody steps forward and starts making like you know really sound explanations for, but come on, it's Ben Bernanke. I mean, this guy, he could, he's good for the debt. Um, I just use my same old statement I've been using for a dozen years in this crazy business. Don't you go getting common sense involved in this. <laughs> There's a matrix here this dude needs to fit, and he's missing two years in the in the same line of work. So next applicant, please. I just thought that was pretty funny. Um, so, yeah. Quick kind of flyby, you know. We're gonna have a, we're gonna have a guest on here for the the middle hour of the show, which leaves us probably you know fifteen minutes or so to to chomp through a little bit of stuff here. And um, you know, I I just can't help but want to talk about the volatility that we've been seeing in the market lately. Uh, I've been seeing the 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 equity and treasury kind of bouncing around a little bit. Been seeing um, interest rates not, and, and maybe you disagree with me a little bit, you're more a secondary guy than I am, but I felt like we should have seen some um, bigger improvements than what we actually saw. Uh, and then, of course, yesterday with the Dow going back up, we lost most of the improvements that we even had during the week anyway. Um, but point being, there's some volatility here again. Is it a surprising thing? Um, I mean, first and foremost, one of the things that you've got going on is that this economy wants to be uh, gaining some steam and getting ahead. What are we doing? Is that my computer? I think so. I believe so, yes. Did it stop? Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> felt like I, I was down and I was looking, Dad's looking at his I was looking at mine, I was like, I think it's yours, Jason. They do these creepy web pages now <laughs> where like you're just sitting there on a news uh, article and all of a sudden, yep, there it is. <laughs> on the latimes.com website, they got some Proposition 46 crap popping up in the bottom of the screen talking on live radio. Right. I'm going to charge them for that. Mm -hmm. That's ridiculous. Yeah, you know, Free sponsorship airplay. for the show here. Um, oh, and about totally lose my train of thought. All right, not completely. What? <laughs> I was, this is a good test to see if you were even paying attention. I, I was, yeah. I was paying attention. You were? Yeah. Oh, what was I saying? <laughs> Talking about how rates kind of, we saw the, the bump up and then an ease back down, and then we kind of lost some of that yeah, improvement. Yeah, and you know, in all in all, I think that this economy is really trying hard to get over that hump of like recovery, you know? It kind of reminds me of the little train that could just getting there, and and it feels like some of the cars have made it over the hump and we're not all the way there yet. Um, and then from around the world, we kind of have these other things that are scary. I mean, the, the ISIS stuff is scary. 
Uh, just driving in today, I heard again, you know, more more ISIS stuff that's just enough to freak people out. Um, protests in Hong Kong, that, of course, just some civil unrest, probably not the same kind of violent threat, that kind of thing. What's going on in Ukraine? But then additionally, uh, the Ebola thing touching down on American soil turns out to be pretty freaky. Um, one of my friends that lives in Austin was kind of half cry laughing that the apartment that the dude lived in, they sent um, a cleaning company to get his sweat ridden bed sheets out of the place with uh, two guys cleaning from Austin, Texas. So that it's a little bit like you go, well, if Ebola comes here, hopefully we're just really smart, like a lot smarter than everybody else about how to contain it and keep it from moving. And obviously not. So that's a scary thing too. And that all of those things can actually be market moving. And and I would say generally that that bad news from abroad and even some of that bad news here um, generally leads to dips in the stock market. And you know that translates into some improvements in interest rates. And so... But then you have a positive employment report, which would kind of... Right up in the middle of the mix. Counteract that. So, so you're kind of seeing some of that stuff go on. And so over the course of the week... Um, we had Case and Schiller come out with their home price estimates. These are things that everybody is just hanging on. Um, the funny thing about the Case and Schiller lag is um, it has a two-month lag in it, but it shows that home price growth slowed in July versus June. And um, they choose to frame it this way, right? That it's slowed, sort of putting a negative spin on it. When I actually read the article, I'll translate it for you, is that home prices are still up from what they were. Um, they're up 5.6% for the month as opposed to July, which was up 6.6%. So you that article is actually still a good one. You know, we want to see normal appreciation of 3 to 5% a year. So that's still just fine, um, even though they wrote the headline in a kind of negative way. Um, then we got uh, sales of new single-family homes, so never lived in before, where it hit their highest level in more than six years, um, up 18%, just over half a million uh, units there. So that the reality is is that those new home sales which has been choppy lately that was pretty good metric those kind of things want to push the dow um and then we learned that uh the pending home sales fell a little bit which kind of those are those homes that are in contract but not yet closed that those numbers were actually a little bit less than they were the month before which uh, that's not necessarily good news. I mean, usually with the restored faith in the housing market, you're going to begin to see people willing to sell because they're going to have confidence in being able to buy that replacement property. So that one is kind of like a negative in the house numbers kind of thing. Um, and then all the while throughout the week, we get to just sit waiting patiently for Friday's employment report. So as I as I take all that in, what I'm hearing, you know, we have we have homes continuing to pre appreciate, but at a more modest pace, a more I, I think sustainable, a sustainable pace, a good a, a solid pace, maybe even above normal. Yeah, um, still around six seven percent. So that's 
that's not a bad number. I, I do think it's kind of weird, kind of funny the way they they spun that headline. Because um, I, I think that's a good thing. We don't want to see that appreciation, you know, in double digit territory. That's just not. I normal, want. Not sustainable. I want my house to appreciate fifteen percent per year, but not like the whole neighborhood. Right. Because then it's like a bubble. Right. And then I and then I hear pending home sales, and I think, well, that sounds seasonal to me. You know, we're we're in that time of year where all the kids are back in school now. It's less convenient for a family to relocate. Um, you know, it's, it's time to, you know, you start shifting your mindset towards holidays. Do yourself a 45 day escrow. You might not have a place for Thanksgiving and then where do you decorate for Halloween? So I, I think none of those, and and honestly, you know, I, I spent a a little bit of time this week just kind of checking out local inventory and I wasn't blown away by, by what was out there. Um, you know, I, I, I did some searches on slowcountyhomes.com and, you know, you have this this pretty cool, you can, you can really customize your search. So I started with just a general search and all the major cities in the area in a certain price range, certain bed bath count, you know, your typical three, two and middle, um, middle of the road type of price point. And there were like 250 homes or, you know, maybe it was upward of 300 homes. When I refined it to homes that were on the market less than 45 days, because the national average of, of days on market is about 33 right. or so, and we know that there's demand still. Um, when I when I filtered it down to 45 days, there was less than 50 homes on the market for for that period of time. Wait, so, and what did it refine from? Uh, upwards, I, I want to say it was like 330, and it went down to like 45. So again, suggesting that an appropriately priced home is selling pretty quickly, yeah. And there are still people on the market that are chasing a fool or have a really funky property that people just aren't that interested. Yeah. So when I hear that pending home sales number down, I think seasonality is is a contributing factor, and then the inventory that's out there is some of the the funky stuff. It's not the homes that are really desirable. So none of those. Those those numbers don't really scare me so much. You know, the unemployment rate I thought was was a great a great thing, um, just psychologically for for the American public to see our unemployment rates down in the fives again. I think that's a there's a psychological boost. Uh, you know, you're probably going to see consumer confidence improve and, and those kind of things as a residual. The effect. unemployment rate dropping. I think now the rate itself, the unemployment rate matches the approval rating of Obama. So the uh, <laughs> the the reality though is that there's still even some mixed news in the jobs report. So first of all, in terms of this volatility, one of the reasons like Thursday was another down day in the market, um, and on Thursday, one of the things that we'd already had to chew on as we anticipate Friday's employment report is that ADP kicked out their numbers. And most folks are uh, aware of who ADP is. They're a huge private payroll firm, a big enough footprint in the U.S. that they're actually able to predict uh, predict with some accuracy. I say some because there's been times when they were wildly off, uh, but they've both on the high and the low side. But they're able to say that based on all of what's going on within you know, the breadth of what they do, they could say how many jobs they believe were created in the, in the private sector. And ADP came out, said uh, added 213,000 jobs. And uh, that's a pretty good prediction. I mean, kind of lately we've been tempered to believe that creating anything more than 200,000 jobs is good. Um, and everybody's sort of uh, adding to some of that volatility. You wait with bated breath because 
uh, the previous month wasn't great, and you wondered if that's the beginning of the new norm. Did we lose traction, uh, or was that the aberration, and we're going to be okay going forward? So pretty important little jobs report. ADP suggested it was going to be pretty good. Um, and then next thing you find out, they come out um, at 248,000. Okay. So exceeding those expectations. Um, and not just from ADP, there are other sources that predict job growth. It was, it was widely predicted for 215,000 jobs added. Um, and so not only do we, do we kind of uh, beat it, I wouldn't say wildly, but yeah, that's a pretty good win. 248,000 jobs added. They also, on the final count of the prior month, um, there where they added up August, 142,000 jobs. Um, they, at the final count, bumped that up to 180. So you actually saw that, you know, last month wasn't as bad as we thought. This month was sort of better than we expected. It proves to us that um, August was the aberration. And now look at um, the actual unemployment rate itself declined a little bit. And this time, uh, only half of the decline is um, because of people giving up hope. The, the, Usually it's it's all of it. Right. So yeah, right? that's that's the thing that you're hearing about where it's the labor participation rate is declining. So that, that wasn't as big of a factor. I thought one other positive from this report was that um, a substantial number of the jobs added last month were in higher paying industries. Uh, professional business service, uh, professional and business service, which is a category that includes engineers, accountants, architects, so decent wage jobs. Um, they added eighty-one thousand of those two hundred forty-eight jobs. Um, so that that's a good thing. What we're still seeing, though, for non-management workers is stagnant wage stagnant growth. wage growth. So that's the problem, and and we're hoping that's the next shoe to drop here. It's great to see this unemployment rate get close to what we consider normal, which is about 5.5%. We're just a tick above that. Um, but it would be nice to start seeing the quality improve now. And I, I think we're, we're, we're ready for that. that. That should be the next phase of this recovery. You made an analogy earlier about, you know, the what, the, the little engine that could Thomas. being our economy. Yeah. Um, and that some of the cars are getting over the hill. I, I don't feel like that. I, no? I feel like we're about a third of the way up the hill. Um, Going so, up the hill yeah, still? Yeah, we're still chugging. Right. We, we've, got, we've got more chugging to do before we get there. And it's, it's going to be a slow road, I think. You know, there's, there's good news looking forward on the, the employment front. There's planned layoffs, which are, you know, when big companies come out and say, yeah, we're, by the end of the year, we're cutting 10,000 jobs. Or, you know, we, we heard that from General Mills, I think. They plan to cut seven or 800 jobs um, over the next several months. But so that, that's not great. But planned layoffs in general in a whole for um, 2014 is on, on track to have the fewest job cuts since 97. So that's, that's good that employers aren't planning on downsizing. Yeah, <clears throat> that's one thing to be said. And, and you know, that's another thing that Janet Yellen has really been trying to help everybody realize as the new chair of the Fed. She's really focused on those numbers, the jolts report and the challenger job cut. Um, I You know, some of the reading I was doing this week was saying that the Fed, the Feds are um, quite a bit in the room are more getting more concerned at this point about the the job quality and the actual wages than now the jobs being created and you point out the glass is half full 80,000 jobs coming in the old white collar segment where they're going to be making a little bit better scratch 
uh, I saw that 35,000 jobs created were just in retail that were expected to have been minimum wage. And so while, you know, I, I love that we have those jobs available and some people that really needed some work probably found some, you know, the other thing to talk about in the market here is you mentioned layoffs. Um, you can't really argue on initial jobless claims anymore. These numbers are firming up in a pretty big way. The four-week moving average is holding below 300,000. Uh, we've had claims of less than 300,000 five out of the last seven weeks. This week being um, you know, no different. We're below that 300,000 number. That's pre-recession lows. The fact that less people are getting laid off, we're beginning to see... Um, a kind of a, a normal thing, I, I'd really say, I mean, how many of the last uh, 10 months, nine months worth of reporting in the employment market, how many of those were less than uh, 200,000 jobs created? I think, I think really only August. And prior to that, I think the last one was December, which really raised my eyebrows because that was the month they chose to on the 89,000 jobs created or something, they went ahead and initiated the taper. Kind of a head scratcher for me there. But uh, anyways, we're definitely seeing it firm up a little bit. And it's good news that 80,000 jobs are getting created in some higher paying thing. Uh, hopefully that's what brings us along. We're going to go ahead and do a commercial break here. It's 930. When we get back, we're going to bring our guests on. Uh, so do stick with us. We'll be happy to take your calls and give you more free radio. So stick with us. Listen to our sponsors. It's Mortgage Matters. Don't go anywhere. Keep it locked to Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. To ask a question, call 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Hi, this is Jason Grody at Central Coast Lending, host of Mortgage Matters on KVEC. We recently made the jump to direct lender. That's right. Now we can do your loan in-house, but we still broker too. We choose based on getting the best loan terms for you. We don't know what to call it yet, but you'll call it amazing. When you buy or refinance a home, just call 543 Loan. Just call 543 Loan. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. What a state of generosity, look what my agent got for me Just by switching to State Farm A few hundred unexpected bucks, I couldn't ask for more But now I've got to figure out what I should use it for A new bike would be radical, but maybe something practical Like a pet baboon with one robotic arm Get to a better state, State Farm Switch to State Farm and you could save To find out more in San Luis Obispo, call Agent Susan Rodriguez for those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. 
through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change. Blakesley & Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley & Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley & Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. You're tuned in to Mortgage Matters, which airs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending, want you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832. Now, back to the show. Hi, uh, guys. Welcome back. No music coming back today huh i was... do a lot of shuffling there during the break so we, we but i i had something i want you to know i was, oh, thinking, I was thinking about you well this sounds funny now uh-huh. it wasn't as much you as i was thinking about when i was in the shower this morning uh, i was just thinking yeah, about how great yeah. it would be if you brought us back from the breaks with more grateful dead songs is that just Oh, I forget. Yeah, I like it. Just, you know, the most like, hated band in the United soul. States. Uh, See, the problem is hated. two loved out of three in the people in the room are yeah, iffy on the Grateful Dead. It's, I'm uh, sorry you guys just weren't properly exposed. But maybe it's, we'll, too, just, it's too polarizing. We just can't <laughs> can't bring that into the show. My favorite okay. thing okay. about my favorite thing All about right. people like you guys, um, the narrow minded, is that <laughs> You can really? I can put on Grateful Dead songs for don't you guys. Don't tread on me, man. That you Just don't, don't tread on me. You will have no idea what it is. And then at the end when you go, that was pretty good. What was that? I go, the dead. It's that band you don't like. There's your Grateful Dead. And you don't like that? Out. Does that does that make you? No, I you... do. I actually do like Cuts. Yeah, I touch, love it. Touch, I love it. Yeah, you get to put on an album and listen to this jam for like an hour and a half. It's great. Jim, is that the whole song? <laughs> was it's it the whole song. Three minutes and 42 seconds? How long something, is it? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Haters gonna hate. I was listening to <laughs> Taylor Swift on the way in. All right, hey, we gotta get down to business now. Thanks, Jim. Sorry, you know I, I don't make me give a call out to all my deadheads out here to blow the phone lines up. Okay, no, I, you know they Jerry will. In the Grateful Dead, but you know they will. Um, hey, we got a we got a guest in here for this middle hour. Um, I don't even want to know if he likes the dead. We won't even go there. Uh, but Roger, welcome. Thanks for coming on today. Um, Roger is an attorney and so he's in for an hour cause that's all we could afford. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. I, no, I'm used to, I was funny. All right. Yeah. Well, hey, good morning. Thanks for coming on the show today. I know that you've at least listened a few times before, but now we're your first time on the radio, right? This is my first time, yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> hey, so we we grabbed a coffee yesterday and sat down and got to kind of try to get to know each other a little bit. And um, I usually like to have our guests kind of talk about what what brings you ultimately here to the Central Coast. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you a little bit yesterday. You have some pretty cool stories. Yeah, I guess uh, I'll bore the audience a little bit. Um, so I've been on the Central Coast here for um, uh, not long, about uh, 10 years now, um, and love it. Uh, was recruited here. I actually was recruited by the uh, Sinsheimer Law Firm into town, so very, very good law firm. And um, been all over the state, San Francisco. I was raised in Los Angeles. I actually worked in Minnesota for a while. 
uh, probably the unique aspects yesterday is I'm in the military as well. Uh, so I'm a, a lawyer, a judge advocate in the military. I'm actually a command judge advocate for the 40th Combat Aviation Brigade, which is in Fresno. And so that occasionally takes me away from uh, San Luis Obispo. I get to see some interesting places like Alaska and Korea and places like that, and some not so interesting, uh, like the sandbox uh, overseas. But uh, it's a great experience being in the military. Um, but um, yeah, no. Tell me when you're, um, and I know this isn't all we're going to talk about today, but I'm just curious in, in terms of the um, doing law work for the, the government like that, what are those, what do those cases involve? Well, there's many different areas, uh, just uh, like the civilian world, um, the military actually prosecutes its own crimes. So soldiers commit crimes, they do bad things, and uh, instead of having the local district attorney or the United States attorney do the prosecution, they actually bring us judge advocates in and we get to try the case. Uh, it's uh, not as... Uh, um, dramatic as a few good men, um, <laughs> but uh, in fact, we don't look nearly as good as the uh, people in that. But uh, but it is uh, it's an interesting thing. You do have a board of officers, or you can have senior enlisted. Uh, I've tried uh, murder cases, uh, assault, rape, wow. uh, the same type of thing. A lot of the military, though, is about what the military cannot can and cannot do. There's a lot of lawyer stuff involved in that. Uh, I just recently had to do a, uh, a report to my commander on whether drones could be used uh, in conjunction with uh, brush fires, whether the military, California National Guard, which has drones, can actually utilize its drones to do uh, infrared uh, examination of fi uh, brush fires because there are different levels of regulation. So there's a lot of boring things like that as well. So, Interesting. Yeah, but it's a nice variety. All right, well, now I got to know, are, uh, and if you're at liberty to say so, but can the drones be used? Well, I'd have to kill you, so <laughs> I'm good on that. I was planning on, like, mowing the yard after work today, so <laughs> I'm going to split. Uh, actually getting kind of widely talked about right now, though, the drones um, all in at real estate, as you could realize— there's a there's realtors that are wanting to use drones to take aerial views of the property in the neighborhood, maybe get a, a sweet zooming out shot of the back patio and pool or something. Um, and so it's kind of getting contested now as to whether or not I, I think we're we're itching towards enough of these little issues together where pretty soon the government's going to step forward and say uh, people aren't allowed just to have drones. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I actually had never really gotten into the specifics until I had this project, but it's a battle between the right to individual privacy, sure, obviously, and the government's need. And, and obviously with a uh, brush fire, which could have you know ramifications not only for uh, homeowners, but also uh, for the population as a whole, there's some exigencies that will play in there. Uh, under certain strict guidelines, drones can be used in combating brush fires. And the technology is amazing. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but, uh, you know, not only do you see the fire, but you can see all of the hot spots. You can see where the, uh, they have the capacity to show you where the brush is the thickest and the driest. So you'll know exactly where the fire may or may not go. So yeah. uh, incredible tool for the military. Now on the civilian side, Obviously, uh, the right to privacy, especially, you know, having someone look in your backyard. I um, saw I saw an issue. I think it was on the Today Show where they kind of like 
first scratching the surface of the topic and they brought on a handful of uh, guests that they lived in an area, I think, of New York where there was high-rise buildings and said it was getting more and more common where uh, these drones would be passing by their windows to their bedrooms or bathrooms or whatever, <laughs> and um, multiple times a day, in fact. Um, and it, people that live on those high-rise buildings kind of have a different sense of privacy because it's not like they have a neighbor at eye level. Um, and so they're, that's causing a little bit of problems. And then I saw also there was a guy that um, listened on a police blotter uh, and basically put his drone over the top of any police activity. If they were stopping someone, you know, just hoping to catch the next beat down or something for fame. Um, and the police, of course, weren't too happy about that, that, you know, this, that was, this guy's mission was just to come over and film them. So it just seems that on every front, we're just going to see this get more and more. Uh, so maybe rush out and buy your drone real quick before you're no longer able to. <laughs> get stock in that company. Did you guys see the drone video of, and I'm sure there's a in lot Morro of Bay. them now, but going up over Morro Bay? Yeah, I did. Awesome. That was pretty neat. It was about five minutes. You can find it on YouTube pretty yeah. easily. It's, and it's totally cool to see that vantage point. I mean, that's something that unless you got a friend with a helicopter, you're you're not going to get that seat. But um, that was very cool. And then I saw another one recently by a, one of the Patterson realtors actually uh, took his drone off at um, Port San Luis, well, off of the the... Uh, Cal Poly Pier over there and went up and around. That was very cool. Around Diablo? Uh, yeah. I mean, not, no. Are yeah. you kidding? I think, like, <laughs> fighter jets would shoot that down. Now, just kind of over the bay right there, getting a good view of, you know, Avila from, as seen from the, the seagull's eye. See, see what I did there? Um, hey, guys, it's a time. We, we totally blew through the first commercial break. So as we're getting ready here to the uh, quarter of the hour, I want to go ahead and do a commercial break. Um, when we get back, we got more conversation. Of course, we're going to hopefully get to a point where we'll be able to take some phone calls too. So we're going to go ahead and take commercial break. Uh, take some time, pay attention to these sponsors. If they didn't pay for these spots, you'd have to pay for this show. Stick around for more Mortgage Matters. Mortgage Matters with host Dan and Jason will be right back. Join the conversation by calling 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending, Central Coast Lending. When you buy or refinance a home, just call 543-LOAN. Just call 543-LOAN. Just call 543-LOAN. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending is locally owned and operated with locations in Paso, Morro Bay, San Luis Obispo, and Arroyo Grande. Central Coast Lending, the mortgage experts. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. 
Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. The state of denial is a drag and a trial. When I bought my cheap insurance, should have known this day would come. Now I've had an accident and I'm feeling quite alone. Called them at least 20 times, but they won't pick up the phone. Without personal service, my policy's kind of worthless. Get to a better state, State Farm. Switch to State Farm and you can save. To find out more in San Luis Obispo, call Agent Susan Rodriguez. You're listening to Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. If you missed any part of the show, log on to centralcoastlending.com for archived shows and more. Now, back to your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. Trucking. Got my chips cashed in, keep trucking, like the doodah man, together, more or less in line, just keep trucking on. on, on. Oh, so gotta get my digs in while I can. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, what are you listening to, Beyonce? <laughs> Justin Bieber? Just trying to keep up with the times. Your premise is false, sir. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we jumped into this segment with Roger. Um, so quick, we got into some interesting talk about drones. We're looking at videos during the breaks. Cool stuff. But um, I want to get back to the, the matters at hand here and, and um, talk about your firm and you know you, you mentioned that you were recruited here by Sinsheimer sounds like at some point you you left and started your own practice right so uh, I, I'm actually I have my own firm now I left uh, Sinsheimer about three years ago now uh, Fredrickson pick is the name of the firm we uh, mainly handle commercial business uh, litigation matters but real property also uh, we try to work with clients mainly on the front end on real estate transactions, that type of thing. My partner, Mike Pick, and I, we've, uh, Mike's also a veteran. He served in the Marine Corps. Uh, he was actually wounded in Somalia. So we have the military connection. and We are uh, very similar people. So it's, it's a great operation. And uh, um, we try to just keep our practice in, in that one area. And uh, we've really done well here locally. Historically, um, guests on the show that have done very well are the ones that usually it costs several hundred bucks to get in front of them and ask some questions. I think the last time we had an attorney on that had some idea and insight about um, you know, the hot topic at the time was uh, foreclosures, still short sales. Um, and, you know, there's some part of me that is wanting to say, I, are there still short sales? I mean, I know you can go to slow county homes and look at short sales are happening around the county. Um, just this week, one of our vendors came into the office and listens to the show and said uh, he had just short sold two houses that he had. And I was like, a little late to that party, huh? Um, I think a lot of that's already gone. But um, you kind of, during the break, brought up a, a pretty interesting point here is that some of the programs by which people did modifications and short sales had some tax exclusions, right? Where you could, if you could prove insolvency, you could get out of the tax liability. 
Um, and some of those programs are sunsetting. So how about a real quick flyby on both my uh, federal income tax as well as my California income tax? Uh, what are we looking at if you go through a, a short sale or foreclosure today where there's debt discharged? Sure, that's a great question. And just getting back to that point, I, I think I've also see the, seen the trend away from short sales and also loan modifications. Uh, I think that's a factor, obviously, that the equity in the homes is now going up again. And lenders, although it's much more difficult to get a loan or refinance uh, just because of the paperwork requirements, I'm seeing that the refinances are happening. And so it, it does seem like there is money now in the system. You probably see that more than I do. But just going through that, uh, the federal government, as we all know, had to step in during the foreclosure crisis or the, the property crisis. And a number of ways that they made it easy, I shouldn't say easy, but uh, facilitated modifications and short sales is they basically uh, took away um, or at least uh, uh, protected homeowners from any debt they might incur for the uh, the uh, the amount that they got out of the loan on. So yeah, so let's let's say yeah. I I have a four hundred thousand dollar mortgage because I did hundred percent financing and now I'm going to sell my house because I can't afford it and I have a bizarro loan. Uh, most I can sell it for is two hundred fifty grand, but I owe four hundred. So suddenly bank says, "Well, dude, you owe us one hundred fifty grand." Of course, I don't have it. So then what happens? Right. So you're going to have, in that case, believe it or not, you actually have a capital gain because, in essence, you've borrowed money that was given to you, and now you've gotten out of the obligation on that debt. So you've actually, in the eyes of the IRS, you've actually had a capital gain. And unless there's some protection, uh, you have to pay that tax on that debt. So uh, One area that um, I get confused on here is... Let's just say though that 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 scenario I described, where I borrow, I buy at four hundred, and I and I borrow four hundred, and now I'm forced to sell for two fifty. Isn't my basis in the property four hundred? I mean, don't I in essence lose one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on this would be asset now for one hundred fifty liability? Shouldn't that just be offset by what you call my one hundred and fifty thousand capital gain? It should be, but that's not how the IRS looks at it. As you IRS know. is always there. <laughs> yeah, they want their money. I don't know why that is. Um, and <laughs> that uh, is a common dilemma. And that's, that's one of the ones that uh, the government came in. It's called the Mortgage Forgiveness Debt Relief Act. I had to actually write it down of 2007. And that was continued for many years. Uh, so Congress would step in and continue that. And then in uh, 2013, that actually sunsetted, December of 2013. So it no longer is in place. Um, fortunately for California residents, if it's a short sale situation, though, the IRS uh, actually analyzed a provision of the Code of Civil Procedure in the situation of a short sale, and it still interprets the that provision is applicable, that law is applicable to short sales, just because of the IRS interpretation. I think it's 580 subpart E 
that is the uh, piece of the code of civil procedure that allows that. And that's the short sell situation. But okay. But now, of course, if you're going to do a, a modification, you have to keep in mind that there's probably going to be some consequence uh, from a tax standpoint. And that feels like that makes a little more sense to me because you still retain stake in the asset itself. And if and when it goes up, it's not fair that you got free income by way of equity because of a... You know, because the funny thing is, is that 10 years later, when we look at the last 10 years, it was like, oh, yep, you had this issue. And yeah, when things got tough, the bank gave you 200 grand. Um, now equity's back and you're healed. And, you know, nobody ever came after you for that 200 grand. You should have had to pay taxes on it, I think. I, and maybe I'm too conservative in that, but. Well, I think it all depends on whose shoes you're sta uh, standing <laughs> in. Uh, sure. <laughs> I have a lot of clients who come to me with the opposite opinion about how it should be and why why they should have to. Yeah, but time. I mean, can you imagine though? Just just because I'm not a lover of the banks. I mean, first of all, if there was like some kind of party where we were all you know going to get together and say terrible things about banks, I could probably <laughs> I'll be uh, I'll be there. I'll be there with the... Uh, You'd MC that one. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it's <laughs> going to go well. It's going to go really well. But point being, uh, bank offers you 100% financing, and you are in the property, loving it, making your payments, everything's going great. House doubles in value. Can you imagine the bank showing up going, uh, hey, Roger, you know, things are not quite... This isn't what we expected here, and you're, you know, we're just going to need you to give us two hundred fifty thousand of that equity you got. You know, we are the ones that made this possible for you. That's like laughable. That's never going to happen. So, how is that when time gets tough? We expect that the bank's going to just chip in half. Well, it's I, not a two way street. That's entirely true. I think that's the case. I think the bank's probably in a better position, knowing what the market's going to be like, having better information than your average borrower about what the investment is, what the equity in that home is going to be, what the market trends are going to be. In fact, I think Bank of America just paid a significant uh, penalty to the federal government because of their handling of it, although I think a part of that was the countrywide uh, sure. purchase of the loans from countrywide. Do you think that one of the, uh, I feel this way as a practitioner of the industry, uh, do you feel like it's only now in retrospect over this last seven year period that things are very clear. Like, you know, five, six years ago when people were looking at like a short sale and he goes, ah, oh, we knew things like, well, is it recourse or non-recourse? And was that a purchase money second or not? And everybody kind of like nibbled around the edges of what the issue at heart was. But I felt like it was very hard to get a very clear answer as to what was going to happen to you if you went through a foreclosure or a, a modification or whatever, you know, five years ago. Have you... From your vantage point, has it always seemed very clear and cut and dry to you? I would say clear and cut and dry. Uh, I will say this. I think a lot of us have uh, become very sophisticated in the terminology since the collapse of the real estate market. Um, it's interesting because back when I started encountering a lot of this back in 2006, 2007, uh, people didn't know what a recourse loan or a non-recourse loan was. Now people, that those are like household terms. Entirely. And, <laughs> and it's interesting because people now understand terms like anti-deficiency and those things. But back then, obviously, when it wasn't, you were making money on the property, no one really cared about it at that right. point. Now people are very sophisticated. And there's a lot of knowledge out there. Uh, I don't think the banks are very sophisticated. I remember working with banks at the outset 
and I would work with their troubled asset department, and they wouldn't even have any sense of what it was they were working with, and I'd actually have to give them opinions as to how it should work right. based on their documentation. Yeah, there was no shortage of that. I mean, we, I, I like to remind people when the modification buzz was going on and everyone was so frustrated about, you know, I send in the facts and they lose my facts. And they go, well, you know, the a huge servicer always, those guys always had a, a troubled asset department or um, a loss mitigation department, whatever they called it, loan modification department. It was small. They were used to dealing with, in, in the normal real estate cycle, people that needed a forbearance agreement or help or the inevitable deed in lieu or something along those lines. And then suddenly these people are tasked with trying to figure out um, 200, you know, 200,000 loan modification applications this week. You know, and, and how are you going to make heads or tails? You guys trying to figure out the sonar? You know, this dude's like probably <laughs> wired up. He's like yeah, high up in the government. Sorry about the beep, but we're trying to figure that out. I think it might be that drone. Just put, the, <laughs> put the phone back on the charger. That'll do it. That, yep, the bot. There you go. Nailed it. That'll handle it. It's That's like a distress call. This thing's saying, you're losing me, Jim. Um. Just going back, you were saying that dealing with these departments, they were not used they to. They weren't geared up yeah. for it. So then, you know, what do you do when you've got major uh, personnel demand? Is go go on out, run your, put a dad on Craigslist, on Monster, wherever you want. People with experience in modification. Uh, there's no such people. And if they work for companies, they're um, not likely to be moving because they're busier than they've ever been. So suddenly you just have, like, I remember hearing these stories about companies holding, like, job fairs for people to come work in the in the loss mitigation company. And what they're finding is that the turnover is ridiculous. These people are making it, like, two days on the job. They sit down and deal with freaking out, crying, screaming people on the phone. And they're like, yeah, right. I'm out of here. So they're hiring thousands of people, can't get people trained up. Those are the very people that all these borrowers are calling to get help. And at some point, you know, I'm not saying be sympathetic towards the bank, but it's just that is the problem of the time then is there's a major unmet need and no real way to meet it. And the quality of people being employed there are not what you hope to get when you need that help. Now that we've weathered it, you know, we have things like the Hope Hotline and all these other resources and people like yourself where it's very clear how this stuff all works out. And, you know, and now enough time, those those new employees have the good experience. We're we're kind of geared up for it. Now it's over. (laughs) No, I would agree with you. I think that's commonly the situation. I can imagine that in the banks uh, here they were for 10 years making money hand over fist, uh, just doing one loan after another and bringing in all these people and probably paying all these great royalties and bonuses and salaries. And then overnight, they have to basically convert all of those individuals into these people dealing with customer service, worst case scenario. Just full-blown crisis management. With no training and really (laughs) no experience as to what was going on. It's not in the manual. That part of the manual was very slim. Um, hey, well, I, I'm really excited to have you on today, and I 
We do have to take the top of the hour commercial break. I'm hoping when we get back, we can get some phone calls. Um, a couple years ago, the the topic of legal help here would have killed. But 543-8830, guys, take advantage of our expert. Call in, ask some cool questions, make some comments, or share an experience. We'll be back after this short break with more Mortgage Matters. tuned in to Mortgage Matters, which airs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending, want you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832. Now, back to the show. Hot town, summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirt and gritty. Then down, isn't it a pity? Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around, people looking half dead, walking on the sidewalk, hotter than a match But at night, it's different. All right, and just to help any of you guys that are confused, that right there was not the Grateful Dead. So, no. Love and Spoonful, by the way. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, um, okay. Welcome back. You're listening to Mortgage Matters. Um, we got Roger Fredrickson here in. In the studio with us, we're going to have him with us for another half an hour here. If you guys have questions or want to get some legal advice, I mean, I was already saying this is usually some of the uh, most called segments we have where we got somebody that um, is not easy to get to. And then um, I don't know if you do consultations or not, but uh, are they free? Well, they're yeah. <laughs> so about that. No, they, typical consultation. Uh, usually, I can answer most questions without having to do any research or anything like that. And I'm happy to take calls or meet people to discuss those things without a fee. I'm, yeah. Uh, and just likewise, I'm not giving legal advice on the show here. There's uh, state bar has like very strict uh, definition of legal advice, but I'm happy to answer questions to the extent of my knowledge. There are a lot of great lawyers in this town, uh, but I'd recommend if you have a very specific legal question, you go and meet with a lawyer in town and go through the details of your issue. Perfect. You uh, you had mentioned to me yesterday that you had some dealings with the estate financial deal, and um, I just I thought maybe you could give us a flyby of. Uh, I have no doubt that some of the listeners today lost money with a state financial or at least have a friend or family member that did. Um, but fly by about, a, you know, maybe just what, what the business practice was of a state financial, how it wrapped up and then what your involvement in it was. Sure. Um, and I know it's a sore subject for a lot of listeners. Um, it was very heartbreaking when I was actually involved in it, uh, because it, uh, first came to me through clients who had actually invested and uh, were not getting their interest payments. Uh, and this was very early on. I want to say 2000, early 2007, maybe even late 2006. Uh, but in any case, the, the way it was set up, uh, ultimately, we, we learned was that uh, it was a program where people would invest, and the idea was that they would uh, invest in a trust deed on a construction project and development project, and they would get an interest, just a portion of the interest in the trust deed, depending on how much they would invest. And so they would take a, a basically a partial interest in the trust deed. Uh, they called it a tenant in common, or TIC was the acronym that was used for it. Uh, 
worked well when the development was going great and it was valued right, but the interest rate on it was between 12 and 14%. That was the annual interest rate on these loans. And when the boom was happening, uh, state financial could make that without a problem because they could refinance these loans and it was not a big issue. But when the collapse happened, obviously, then they couldn't pay the juice on the loan anymore. And that's when the dilemma for state financial uh, took place. Now, what should have happened in the paperwork and so forth uh, is they should have had a more of a disclosure of exactly what these people were investing in and what the risks were. And more importantly, these people should have been evaluated to see whether they were sophisticated enough and had the assets that would enable them to actually survive a downturn. And unfortunately, most of these people were completely unaware of the situation. They would take out seconds on their homes, they would cash out their retirement accounts, and they would invest. And as you can imagine, that was absolutely devastating. Um, ultimately, it turned into a Ponzi scheme. And uh, once the founders of the company could no longer pay the interest, uh, they then started yeah, using investments from other investors to pay the interest of yeah, the people who had already invested. So that's a classic that. Ponzi where you're taking money from the new investors to okay, pay the name? existing investors Mike, and moving on. Uh, okay. My involvement, uh, initially I represented uh, with the Sinsheimer firm a number of investors. Uh, we brought a lawsuit uh, essentially first just to get the documentation and find out what was going on behind the scenes. Uh, worked with the Department of Real Estate eventually. They got involved behind the scenes in the Department of Corporations. And then at that point, uh, when we were about to go to court on it, they stepped in, uh, the Department of Real Estate, and joined in the lawsuit. Led to the bankruptcy. The bankruptcy occurred uh, by State Financial. And then that was taken over by the bankruptcy trustee who hired myself and Sinsheimer Firm as the special counsel to the trustee to work on the litigation issues and the lien stripping involved in the estate financial process. So did the um, the people that invested end up with some of their principal back or by and large? No? Um, you know, it's interesting. The trustee, uh, Tom Jeremiason, uh, is, was really uh, top-notch on this. And he worked, he had a great team put together. Uh, it The idea was that they would work in each individual loan. They would see what they could capture by either putting the property on the market or completing the, the property, and then whatever they could get from that, they would try to distribute to the investors on it. The problem they had is that a lot of the deeds were not recorded. Right. So if your deed was not recorded or your interest in the deed was not recorded, you were unsecured. And for purposes of a bankruptcy, the worst position you could possibly be in is an unsecured creditor of a debtor in a bankruptcy. So that led to more issues. Um, some loans uh, saw, 30, 40 uh, cents on the dollar paid back, some unfortunately much, much less. Um, yeah. And wow. it was devastating. It really yeah. was. Yeah. Clients constantly of ours come in with, you know, and it's growing to where it's like kind of starting to, they're recovering some of them a little bit, but some lost all. And that was definitely tough. Uh, so, guys, phone number here, 543-8830. We do have a uh, first phone call to get to. Mike calling from Five Cities. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Hi, how are you today? Good, how about yourself? I'm doing well, thank you. Got a question? I, I do, uh, for the attorney there. What's the difference between a judicial, or I'm sorry, non-judicial and judicial foreclosure? Okay, that's a, a great question. Um, 
it uh, has a lot to do with how the foreclosure is processed. Uh, so a judicial foreclosure is just as the term indicates, it's one that would actually have to be handled through a lawsuit in the court systems. Uh, usually a judicial foreclosure will involve a, what's called a, uh, a non-purchase money loan. Uh, so it's a little technical, but the idea is that if you purchased your home, a one to four unit family residence, and the loan was used solely for the purpose of buying your home, then that would be a purchase money loan. And that is protected under the state law. And the lender on that would be obligated to evaluate the equity in the home before the loan is made so that if the loan went bad, the lender only would get the value, whatever equity the home sold for on the foreclosure. But getting back to your question, if it's a judicial foreclosure, if that's how the lender decides to go, it would have to go through the court system a non-judicial foreclosure, on the other hand, is a process that can be handled by a foreclosure agency just by the terms of the trustee. Trustee will provide a process for foreclosing the trustee. That process typically takes 120 to 150 days uh, to accomplish. Uh, it has something, in, there's no right of redemption, which is important, it's a technical issue. Whereas a judicial foreclosure action, especially if it's opposed, could go a year, year and a half. Are those terms synonymous with recourse and non-recourse? They're somewhat synonymous. Uh, recourse and non-recourse. A recourse loan is one where the lender actually has the opportunity to the opportunity to actually go after the uh, borrower for a deficiency in the difference between the equity in the home and the amount of the loan, whereas a non-recourse is uh, the opposite. Usually a purchase money loan is non-recourse, and the idea being that you know the government doesn't want banks lending more money on a property than the homeowner should be taking, where it puts the homeowner in the vice of basically not only losing the home, but then having to fight off a lawsuit and a judgment from the bank for the difference in the value between the loan and the, the, the home. Is Mike still on the line? I am. Does that answer your question? Is there a second yeah, part? But there was one part that you mentioned, the right of redemption. What does that mean? Right. So the right of redemption, that's a technical term. I'll try to simplify it. Basically, in a non, uh, non-judicial foreclosure, there is no right. But basically, the, the borrower, the homeowner, has the right after the foreclosure to actually purchase the property back uh, out of the foreclosure. Uh, it arrives in a, a judicial foreclosure situation, it, and it uh, uh, is one of those rights that if you're a purchaser at a foreclosure sale, you have to keep that in mind that uh, the borrower could buy the property back. And isn't, at times, isn't the redemption period as long as uh, a year? It can be a year. Yes. Yeah. So you, you could be in a position where somebody could, and I think the, the, the spirit of the law here is that it's your house, you're in a bad way, you can't make good on it. Now you go through your mortgage is actually foreclosed upon. So you have this period now where if you can redeem yourself, show up with a bag of money, 
then you get your house back. And uh, it's I think that's one of the reasons that California is a non-judicial foreclosure state is that that part's too messy. And I think it undermines the confidence of the investor in the housing market of it, it muddies the lines in which somebody could participate because you might by going in to buy a business investment, if you're a real estate investor, you might be buying something that has no value because somebody's uh, redemption could come through and wipe you out. Yeah, and it's important if someone is purchasing a, a property at a foreclosure sale, you know, you go to the courthouse steps and you've got your check there, very important to make sure that that foreclosure was a non-judicial foreclosure because if it is a judicial foreclosure, then there is that right of redemption. And uh, if the home sells for the uh, equity value and there's a deficiency, there's a one-year period. And so that might reduce the value you see in the home if you're purchasing at the foreclosure sale. Any other questions, Mike? Well, just a, a quick follow-up on that. In either situation, uh, as a borrower, would you ever have to uh, pay back the defaulted balance to, to a lender? If you were a borrower, it depends on the type of loan. If it's a recourse loan or it's a uh, non- Yeah, so let's say hypothetically you took and uh, you took a line of credit out on your house in 2005 because you bought yourself that trailer down at the river and the jet boat and, then, of course, the Hummer to pull it there. $200,000 in debt of a, a recourse loan at this point. You have no protection. This wasn't your purchase money. Uh, deal you took cash out of your house and spend it on all this other stuff that's a loan where um you could they it could be a recourse loan they can come through and get a, a judgment um against you where they can lean wages garnish um or lean bank accounts garnish wages even uh further pressing than that but those that's the kind of thing that can happen unless of course um you're insolvent right or able to get bankruptcy protection no, there's always that. That's true. So there'd be bankruptcy protection. So the big key, Mike, is whether it's whether your financing that's currently in place on the property is is purchase money or not. You know that that determines whether or not the bank has the ability to to come after you for that deficient amount. Thank you. And how how can you determine that? Uh, the original loans that were taken out at time of purchase on the house, um, if you refinanced. Uh, and this, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Roger, but this was like one of the first places things got a little bit muddy is, well, I bought my house for 300000 and I got 200000 in loans. So I made a down payment and everything. Uh, a couple years later, my purchase money loans were at 180 and I got a new loan for 180 at a lower interest rate. And now I just am cruising along. So technically... In, in you never the, pulled equity out of the home. In the spirit of it, what I still have is my purchase loan, though it was redone. But it, it could be argued that now what I have is a recourse loan because it was a refi. So here's a question for you. When you refinance your purchase money loan, are you giving up protection um, and giving up that right to have that non-recourse loan? And that's a very good question. Typically not, but you're going to have to have the documents reviewed. And that's uh, one of the areas I, I often highly recommend. You go and have the documentation reviewed by a lawyer. Very inexpensive usually for a lawyer such as myself to take a quick review and make sure that the language is in there, that there's non-recourse language and that it's specific to the specific regulatory guidelines. 
And when you say have the documents reviewed, are you talking about my refinance documents? Like if, so if I'm a client that's considering refi and that's something that bothers me is I don't want to lose my non-recourse status, would I bring the proposed loan documents to you for a review? That's what I'd recommend. Okay. Where is that language included? Is it the note? It can be in the note and also in the trust deed. Okay. Yep. Hey, Mike, thanks a bunch for your call today. Hey, thank you very much hope, for the time, gentlemen. Hope we shed some light on it, but I do appreciate it. You did. Thank you. It gets complicated quick. And one of the problems is when we have these discussions like this on the radio where we're using some terms that people might or might not be familiar with, but we're it's kind of broad. And what you finally realize is that if you're facing one of these situations, you need help. Your the the variables of your transaction, and then as they relate to you and your solvency, whether or not you a court would find you able to repay this money, and kind of doing these things electively or something, you need to go get legal help. Um, go see somebody like yourself to to find out wh- how is this really going to go down. And you know what's fascinating is um, I I talked about this uh, a lot during the foreclosure period on the show, but. I just really hated that they made the term walking away. You know, just made it sound so passive. You know, you just walk away. You bought the house, it didn't shape up, walk away from it. You know, give them the keys back. And the reality of it is, is that is not good advice. Um, I was really careful throughout and still today to tell people, uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> I have no idea. I know there are some laws about whether or not loans are recourse, if they're purchase money or not. There's some insolvency uh, calculations that need to be done. Um, bottom line is you're talking about the potential to get clobbered. If um, this vendor of mine that um, I was talking to on Wednesday, uh, house he uh, had for $750,000 sold for three fifty, and he asked me, uh, am I going to have to pay taxes on that? Um, and it's an investment property. So uh, that I don't believe he ever lived in. There's like two of them and it was kind of the same thing from what I understand. Uh, But I look at that and I go, you know, I I know that you have some basis in it depending on what your down payment is and what you acquired it for. Um, But I I don't know. And like we've already talked about some of these things have sunset already that, it, you know, but like you pointed out earlier, if it's an actual short sale itself, there could still be some extended protection there. So, um all of you guys, if you're facing this, and if even if it's something that's already happened uh, in 2014 here, uh, it's a good idea to get get in and figure out what's going to happen, get some counsel, maybe come up with a plan uh, before you just find yourself trying to file taxes on your W-2 and then wondering why it is the government expects you to pay them $100,000 cash. You bring up an interesting point about the occupancy. Now, if it's an investment property with the original purchase money loan, does that change? Does the occupancy change whether or not the bank has recourse against you or not? It does because the criteria is that it basically be a uh, your family home, one to four units, and that it be owner occupied. And so that's a big thing. I, I uh, often run into this in my practice where people will uh, purchase an investment property. It doesn't work out. And they are stunned to discover that they're exposed to a deficiency judgment. Likewise, on construction, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people will uh, refinance a home to build an addition and do something of that nature to the home, and they run into this issue. So, 
uh, I often say it's, you know, uh, lawyers may be scary and you may hear that, you know, the fees are very high and so forth, but uh, think about the expense of just going in to get an opinion at the outset from a, a lawyer as compared to having to fight the IRS over some tax bill or having to fight some <laughs> bank over there pursuing you for your personal assets because of a deficiency judgment. There, there was a client that I had a couple years ago that was had an investment property that was bleeding him 500 bucks a month. And he could pay it, but it was like the bane of his existence. Hated the idea of paying five, 500 bucks a month for this. And talked about doing a short sale, but it was... Um, it was pretty clear that this loan was an investment property, never lived in it, even had taken cash out of it at one point, certainly was not insolvent, said, you know, you're you're better off. Had he went and got some good counsel, what you'd find is you're better off to just float this thing the 500 bucks a month and wait it out because at some point you're going to be okay in this versus you take the $200,000 hit today. IRS doesn't deal well with people. That's not an entity that you want to be nailed by. And with their penalties and interest, you can end up at more than 500 bucks a month, uh, or you're going to be parting ways with, you know, 50 or hundred grand. And not only that, uh, it would not be something that would be discharged in bankruptcy. Uh, the IRS has a preference in bankruptcy that you, you have to keep in mind. So, Right up there with student loans, huh? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Government gets its share no matter what. Yeah. Um, I. Oh, what was I going to ask you? The. Um, uh, I suppose I'll remember in a minute. We're running out of time here, and so um, I think I feel like we may have kind of dominated topic on you here. Is there was there anything that you were really hoping to talk about and explore here today? Well, I don't know if I was hoping to explore something here. I, I wanted to just give some insight into uh, how real estate transactions take place and what certain risks can be. A lot of what I do in my practice, I try to advise clients when they get into uh, investment properties or when they are building, they want to build something or they're developing property. Uh, very good to get with a lawyer ahead of time. Doesn't have to be me. Don't worry, I'm not making a pitch. There are some very good lawyers in town, and I, I highly recommend that you look around and find a good lawyer. But those are the type of things which have these inherent risks that if you're not experienced and you've not done this type of thing before, having a lawyer uh, involved in that, critically important, because you'll find out a lot of things that you didn't know, as simple as local regulations that might prevent you from what you want to do to something a little more complex about how the documents should be set up and whether you should sign a guarantee agreement and whether uh, you know, those, those types of things are involved. Likewise, if you're the one who's investing, very important to have the documents looked at by a lawyer. Most investors do, but you know, just think about it. This is your investment. Uh, you want to have everything set up so that you can recover your money if the investment goes south. You mentioned this yesterday, but... Um... You're a litigation attorney that um, would love to spend your time preventing litigation, <laughs> helping people not step into those pitfalls and not create those critical errors. And, you know, and I think the other thing that most people seem to realize is that um, when you're dealing with things like this, where there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars at stake. It's just good. You're over your head. I mean, I, I look at these people that are doing their, uh, I had a client this week tell me he's doing a for sale by owner on his house. And all I could think was that's just, 
in my opinion, one of the silliest things you can do. Um, one could make a living out of buying for sale by owners and then suing the owner for not following disclosure law perfectly. Um, it's not a good idea. Um, and, you know, so the my just general cry for people would be if you're involving yourself in something like this, trust me, you're in over your head. Um, get some help over understanding the contract and language. Um, my, I have a close family member that's uh, very wealthy and has always gets legal counsel on different contracts and documents. And I did a loan for him a few years ago where uh, he and his two lawyers were able to have some verbiage removed um, from the trust deed and note that they didn't believe were um, you know, beneficial for them. And all I could think was good on you. <laughs> I kind of, when he says, I'm going to have the lawyers look at this, I hey, you know, write them another, you're probably going to pay 1500 bucks to get that thing reviewed. And I, I can't imagine you're going to win there. The bank's got 15 lawyers that wrote the dumb thing to protect them. But, um, you know, that's something that we realize though. And even in the purchase contract arena and stuff, the builders, for example, are using their proprietary contracts that are so heavily slanted towards favor of the builder. Um, when you're buying, every time I get one of these 30 page documents for one of the new, you know, usually north of the grade um, new homes, I look at the contract and I was like, man, you should really have a lawyer look at this. And I know they get them uh, approved by the Department of Real Estate and everything, but they're just. It's not, it's not familiar, it's not the same, and you're spending a half million bucks, go get a good opinion, right? All contracts are negotiable. Yeah, <laughs> true, true. Hey, well, Roger, it's 10.30, so we, we made it through the hour. How'd it go? You know, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I had a good time. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We certainly appreciate it. And and like I mentioned to you yesterday, I'm, I'm thrilled now to, to feel like I have a, a enough personal relationship with you that I, I hope to be able to give your information to some people that need your help to, to help, uh, navigate contracts, you know, but, and, uh, and also avoid litigation for the good and the bad, I guess I should say. So, uh, if any of you guys that are listening want to get a hold of Roger um, and need some of that unique help, I mean, he's very humble and says he's not here to give a sales pitch. So I'm going to give one for him. Um, you can find the, uh, the firm is Fredrickson pick LLP, um, give them a call here, 541-4900. And it looks like the website's fredricksonpick.com. If you missed that or you're driving, don't try to text anything. Just call us this week and we'll, we'll make sure to give you their contact info. So um, thanks much for being on today. I certainly appreciate it. I, I feel like uh, even for myself, some issues clarified and, and learned. So thank you. Thank you. Everybody else, we do have a half an hour to go. So what we're going to do is get Roger out of here so he can go get on to enjoying his weekend. When we get back down, I'll get back in. We got some more article stuff to uh, discuss here. So stick with us for more Mortgage Matters. To ask a question or make a comment, call 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. We'll be back after these messages from our sponsors. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. 
Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. Hi, this is Jason Grody at Central Coast Lending, host of Mortgage Matters on KVEC. Let me and my staff of mortgage experts help you refinance your home or investment property. Lower your rate, shorten your loan term, or get out of your mortgage insurance. Call Central Coast Lending today. When you buy or refinance a home, just call 543-LOAN. Just call 543-LOAN. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. The state of denial is a drag and a trial. When I bought my cheap insurance, should have known this day would come. Now I've had an accident and I'm feeling quite alone. Called them at least 20 times, but they won't pick up the phone. Without personal service, my policy's kind of worthless. Get to a better state, State Farm. Switch to State Farm and you can save. To find out more in San Luis Obispo, call Agent Susan Rodriguez. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. You're tuned in to Mortgage Matters, which airs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending, want you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832. Now, back to the show. All right, guys, welcome back. That was really fun for me. Um, it's it's cool to be able to have um, an attorney on the show that uh, is so easy to talk to and so approachable. Um, sometimes with attorneys, I feel like there's too much posturing or, um, you know, I, I just I like that that Roger's easy to talk to. And, and of course, a world of experience. Uh, we only scratched the surface today. I was trying to tell Dan during the break. I learned a little bit more about Roger yesterday, and um, what a cool dude. So um, I I wonder if it's still on in his car, but if it is, thanks again, Roger. We appreciate you. Um, so, Daniel. Sir. It's uh, 1035. We've got some more things to discuss here today. Um, you know, we've been talking about the uh jobs numbers and that getting a little bit better going uh, we were talking also about the housing numbers and how it's kind of a mixed bag but i'm going to argue that they're all pretty good uh, we learned the week before that uh inflation is still not an issue this is the month man it is october this is the month that uh the feds are going to be done with tapering completely. In fact, by the next meeting, they're expected to say that it's done and they're out. Um, and so I think it's it's a kind of an interesting time right now. 
Um, one of the things that I had heard recently that I thought um, made a lot of sense is that even though the feds are um, have been beginning this taper, one of the reasons that rates have been trending lower is that um, it's kind of a volume issue that these types of loans and also the bonds that the government is offering for sale uh, it is the numbers are down and with the Fed buying less of it, uh, there's still such a big demand. The, the mortgage-backed securities are perceived as such a safe haven and such a good bet right now that um, even absent of the Fed buying, uh, rates seem to be falling in the face of it. And it, it's, a, it's one of these things where you know time is showing us that this is the way it plays out. Because back when the feds were starting the taper, um, I would have said something to you like this. They're a huge purchaser, and $90, $85 billion a month is a lot. And when that guaranteed buyer says, enough for me, I'm done, the rest of the investment community is going to demand more than 3% for a 30-year fixed, right? There's no longer a guaranteed buyer. You're going to have to bring it to market rate. And somebody that's willing to tie up money for 30 years wants a better yield, and that's why rates are going to go up. But what we're finding out right now is it's not necessarily true. In fact, it's not, it's true. not true. Yeah, in fact, um, you know, this this week Freddie Mac reported the the nationwide average for a thirty year loan um, was at four point one nine percent. At the beginning of the year, the Freddie Mac reported rate for a thirty year loan was four point five three percent. So we're over a quarter of a point below where we started at the beginning of the year, which is the opposite of what both you and I expected and probably most people expected. But you're right, it's a volume issue as more the mortgage market has really shrunk um, compared to the you know the refi boom of the last four or five years. and and as such, with with the the feds pulling back on what they're buying, there's less to buy in general. So there's still essentially the same amount for the other investors. If you will, so that, so there hasn't been an increased supply to them where they would demand higher rates, and that coupled with just a lack of of other better investing alternatives have have kept rates low. In fact, moved them lower since the beginning of the year. Yeah, um, so it makes sense now, right? Can't you kind of recap it and say, oh yeah, the less the lower volume and the quality of investment is keeping rates nice and low, absent of the Fed's golden ticket. Um, Back then, it made perfect sense for us to say that absence of the guaranteed buyer leads to you know a normal market where higher yields are demanded. Well, remember too when when tapering was first announced about eighteen months ago, um, you know it was rumored prior to that, but it was you know there was a an actual conference where Bernanke spoke and markets moved. We the housing market was going absolutely gangbusters white hot yeah people lining up to just outbid each other on homes and and that i don't think it was anticipated that the market the the housing market would cool as fast as it did or was it <laughs> and i remember at the time being pretty pissed off about it you remember me being upset about it hey we just spent trillions of dollars on getting these rates down and restoring faith in housing. And that run of like the full-blown feeding frenzy was probably for like 
14 or 16 months before all of a sudden the feds come out with their wet blanket. And I remember thinking, what are they doing? Why wouldn't they give us at least a couple years? And you know what I was thinking right now when you were talking? Guys at the feds are pretty smart. And, you know, in in terms of, hey, it's time to pull this lever. Uh, we got to slow this thing down. We got to pull this lever. And um, it might be a little bit of a, a rough landing or even a skid, but it's something we got to do and it's going to be okay. Totally. And it worked. And and I'm I'm perfectly okay with what the results been, even at the time I didn't know it. So I kind of feel like I got a, a good parenting lesson from the Fed <laughs> about these are some smart people doing a really good job to keep keep us on the right course. Or are they? <laughs> Let me, I mean, it's interesting um, because, you know, let's go back to where we started this whole show with, with Ben Bernanke's conference from, from Thursday. He went on to say in his remarks about ability to qualify for mortgages and the housing market that the first time home buyer market is not what it should be as the economy strengthens. Well, it's just because they have too much student loan debt. <laughs> um, he goes on to say the housing area is one area where, where regulation has not yet got it right. Um, he thinks the tightness of mortgage credit and lending is still excessive. So maybe that's just his opinion after his okay. difficulties in getting a loan. But I, I think there's something to that when... This dude has to come forward and make a comment, okay? He's at a press conference, right? What is he going to say? And I mean, you tell me, dude, for real. Because uh, I'm reading this week that FHA is having some delinquency issues, is still below the reserve requirement that they're, they're supposed to have. And the average credit score for an FHA borrower has fallen below 680 for the first time in some years. Um, so one of the things that you got going on is that you can get a government loan by way of FHA um, down to a 550 credit score right now with some, I mean, come on. That's pretty gross. And that very loan at 550 requires a 3.5% down payment. So up here in um, Paradise, Central California, um, the uh, home values, you know, maybe you can get one in Atascadero, I don't know, 300 grand. 3.5%. What are we working with? 11.5? Was that close? Talking monthly payment? No, no, no. 3.5% down. On 300 grand. Sure, something like that. 11.5. You get to buy yourself 10.5. There you go. So you buy yourself a house with a 550 credit score, 3.5% down. It could be like 10 grand. That's pretty easy. I mean, that's really easy. That's cheap money um, and pretty low bar. It, so, what in terms of credit do we need to make looser? Uh, conventional loans are going down to 620. Uh, you review a lot of, uh, in, in some cases, lower, I know, but I'm just going to say as an industry, 620. Um, you got to do a pretty good little trick to get yourself a 620. You got to not pay some stuff, maybe get yourself a couple collections. Um, 620 credit score isn't like... You know, you missed a car payment. That's not 620 credit. So even in conventional world, credit itself. So maybe we're not talking about the actual credit standards, but what it takes to get credit. Um, debt to income ratios to 50% are being calculated still off of gross gross wages. And one of the things that gross wages isn't taking into account is your health care cost, 
which is known to have doubled in the last couple years here. So we use really liberal calculations in terms of using your gross income um, to qualify to a 50% debt to income ratio. Um, reserve requirements on Fannie Mae loans, you don't even have to have any. If you close your loan and there's $0 left in the bank after you meet your closing costs, down payments and all that, no reserves, that's fine. So um, I, I just am only for sake of argument here, what part should we cut? What do, which which one of those do we want to do? Should we let debt to income ratios go to sixty? Should we, you know, remove credit score requirements altogether? Uh, which part of this gives? And that's a thing where if I was on the if I was moderating this discussion with Bernanke, that's what I want to know. You're going to come out here and criticize the the lending market to say that the standards are too strict. I don't. I'm not going to sit for your blanket statement. You tell me. Which one of these things is too hard? Um, I hear what you're saying. I, I agree. I mean, I, I think the the criteria to qualify makes sense right now. You have to qualify based on showing all your cards. And, and that, to me, makes sense. If you're talking, you know, the, if he's talking about bringing back stated income so that people can boost, you know, inflate what they make on paper to qualify for a loan, that, to me, is not the right approach. Um, you know, perhaps there's some 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 work that can be done to help self-employed people because you know we talk about gross income and the reason we qualify off of gross is because it it makes for an even playing field for those who are working on a schedule or you know reporting income on a schedule c versus those who are reporting it on you know line seven of the 1040 um you know those are the wage earners so that's just a way to even the playing field so that an underwriter can evaluate people apples to apples but you know whether or not the debt ratio is the right number or really truly affordable you know i i'm not sure i, I think you're right i don't know that there's much you can I'll do tell to you loosen where, credit. i'll tell you where it would be if if it were me that was advising um policymakers today here's where i would do it um, Fannie and Freddie are still in conservatorship. We forget about that, but um, they're in conservatorship now since 2008. So we're like, we're heading into seven years that they've been in conservatorship. And that means that they're taxpayer owned, plain and simple. This is a government enterprise at this point. Um, I would say as long as they're government owned and the government's been buying 90 billion a month of mortgage-backed securities and it's been wildly profitable, um, if you know anything about investment of it, you, you cannot criticize in any way. Um, the program's been huge. My pitch would be um, to go through and make a government program where your appraised value doesn't matter, especially today. If you made your mortgage payment on time through the recession and got to today's point, if you're still upside down and your interest rate's 6% or you did a HARP loan in the very beginning and you got a 5.5 or a 5, if you kept paying and watched your equity um, deplete and then come close to all the way back and you never took that opportunity to miss your mortgage and be a delinquent, those guys I would give a new loan to today across the board, owner-occupied, investment-occupied, I don't care. Those are the ones I'd say where, where you're to no fault of your own because of what your neighbor did, your loan-to-value has you underwater. Those guys, I'd, I'm going to argue that credit standards are too tight there. I agree with you, it. but and, and that's helping the existing homeowner that's in a distressed situation. What it's not helping is the first-time homebuyer enter the market. And what I thought you were going to say, because you've said uh -huh. it a lot of times on this show, 
I, I don't think dumbing down the debt-to-income ratio or credit standards beyond what they are is the right move. I think extending the loan term beyond 30 years is the the place where you can help create affordability for a first-time home buyer who, you know, I mean, think about jobs around here. We regularly see a, a couple, you know, they don't even have kids. They're just two people, a married couple, who are each earning around $4,000 a month. It's tough to buy homes in this area when you have a household monthly income of $8,000. It sounds like a lot of money, and in a lot of regions of the country, that is a lot of, of, of money. Around here, to afford the median-priced home, which is upwards of $400,000, and those are the ones that you're competing with the investors for. So to really find a home, you know, you're talking five, six, sometimes $700,000 to buy your first home. Uh, I have a couple you recently. You can't do that. So the way you create that affordability and create the ability to use a reasonable amount of your monthly income on housing is to make a 40 or 50 year loan. Right now, the government has yep. deemed those predatory. a non-qualified mortgage, a predatory loan. And banks don't want to offer those because they have to retain a 5% minimum stake in those loans yep. for the life of the loan. And banks don't have the capital to be able to do that. I mean, some do, but they don't want to offer those loans. And if they do, they're going to be at greatly increased interest rates to justify that investment. Yeah, this this topic is one that I think is a favorite of mine. Uh, it's just super simple. Um, you need to lower payment, right, to create affordability. Uh, the things that move the payment, <laughs> the rate, interest rate, um, we've done all we can do to affect interest rates. The loan amount? The loan amount? Can't get much less we than don't want zero it lower. or three and a half or 5% down. Yeah, we don't want the loan amount any lower because that would indicate property values are falling and we know what happens when that goes down. Uh, and then lastly, term. Amortization term. So there's a variable that nobody's monkeyed around with. And I and I just, as a case sample here, I'll just ask you, uh, if your lender next month said, hey, Dan, uh, on your mortgage, here's a 40-year option, um, are you going to use it? Me personally? Yeah. I mean, I probably won't, but that's me. Me either. Um, I don't need to. Yeah. I want to pay my house off sooner. It um, As a self-employed guy, I need to pay it off as soon as I can because that's a big part of my retirement. Um, so as long as old CFPB, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureaucrats, are around making laws and stuff, I got one for you. How about uh, forcing all lenders to give options? Um, every well, time you get your mortgage payment coupon, you should have, like you have a 30 year loan, you should have your 30 year payment, you should have your 20 year payment and your 15 year payment. Um, and, and right next to that, if you do this, you'll pay off by so that it's fresh in people's mind. And then with first time home buyers, if you need to create some affordability for a first time home buyer, give them a 40 year loan option. And then also a 30-year payment option too, because isn't a first-time home buyer usually having um, the prospect of upward movement at work? Uh, you might only need to make your 40-year payment for the first three years of your loan because then you get a couple good promotions and now you can make the 30- or the 25-year payment. That's a really clever and smart spin on the pay option 
mortgage that right? occurred where where it was all about negatively amortizing payment options. Here you're talking about safe fixed rate options where you get a 15, 20, 30, 40 or maybe a 50 year option. That that's a smart spin on that. Um, you know, let's go back to your scenario where someone's looking at a $350,000 home, putting down, you know, 10,000 bucks or so, then you tack on the mortgage insurance, essentially brings your loan amount right up to what the purchase price was, 350 grand. That loan on FHA is costing Upwards of twenty five hundred dollars a month with all the mortgage insurance laid on and taxes a, and property insurance. Think about if you could extend out that term to forty or fifty years and drop that monthly payment from twenty five hundred down to say fifteen hundred dollars a month. Is that person likelier to continue making that payment and stay in that home? Um, yeah, they're going to have that loan for forty or fifty years, but the reality is. Their income, you know, they're they're a young, you know, twenty something, maybe early thirty something family buying their first home, and they they have a fifteen hundred dollar a month payment. Are they really going to be in that loan for forty or fifty years, or is that just a stepping stone to getting their foot in the door? At some point, their home's going to appreciate. They're going to own it for fifteen years. They're going to see some appreciation. At some point, it's going to make sense for them to refi, or they're going to want to sell it and step into a new home and use that equity and then get into a a, a thirty year loan or maybe even a fifteen year loan because their job situation has improved too. I think that's how you help the first time home buyer community use that as a stepping stone. It's a safe loan because it's fixed. The, the, and the interest to the bank is great because now they're getting a lot more um, interest for a greater period of time over the, the beginning you know, 10 or so years of that loan, whereas now most of their interest is collected just over the first five years. Dude. There's so many benefits. Dude, you're <laughs> so right. And you and I can make this argument. I mean, we're, we're making it on the fly in a pretty compelling way. Um, we should get a guest on here that's like... Um, I don't know, one of the statesmen or something that could show us how to get legs. Maybe they want to write the bill and we'll help them sound like uh, you We've know, done they know this. what they're talking about. We've done this. We were a beta tester for a previous company with Bear Stearns. You remember them? That, oh, yeah. The, the four-letter word in mortgage, Bear Stearns. Um, they, we beta tested a pay option arm for them. That's how you get something like this going is you have to find a firm – on Wall Street or a big bank that will help craft that program because at the end of the day they're the ones at the capital right now really securitize that type of product. I agree. I think first though what we really need is that the government needs to open their eyes to it. Um, there's they need a to make of, a forty and fifty year term. That the first thing they can do is make that a qualified mortgage. Return it to Fannie Mae it's and Freddie Mac. It's a fixed rate mortgage. What is predatory about it? Well. I read some um, articles about the topic about, you know, because honestly, it, it has been discussed. And one of the things that they end up saying is that the going just from 30 to 40 doesn't reduce the monthly payment enough to offset what the additional interest cost is in that amortization of that extra 10 years. And, you know, I'll, I'll say... It depends on the metrics, you know, on what rates and stuff you're using as you put them in there together. But um, I just it's it's time that we explore smarter ways to deal with the issue, ways to return affordability, ways to spur on the economy. You know, like y you and I, for example, if you were offered a 40 year option tomorrow, you're not going to pay it. I'm not going to pay it. I don't need to. It doesn't jive with what I'm trying to do um, in terms of my own financial goals. Uh, there are some people that um, 
getting into that 40-year term for a refi or a 50-year term would get them the slack in that noose around their neck they've been dying for for years. They could replace that clunker car that they're legging on. They could start putting money back into their retirement plan that they took out to supplement the lost wages. Maybe they could afford to not take out student loans to put their kids I'm through college. I'm telling you <laughs> that it, it would just mean so much to so many. It's disappointing to me that we don't think about it. I, I really do think, though, that we need to get it on the radar of the people that are working um, on guidelines in Fannie and Freddie, get it under qualified mortgage. So we should see if we can get like uh, somebody, you know, from the state. I don't know where to start. I mean, I perhaps a, one of the listeners does and can can get us going down that path. Uh, I don't know. I'm not eager to go like be some kind of lobbyist in D.C. or something, though. That's not. Although I, I feel like I could be pretty influential, don't you? Sure. I would totally shave and like put on a suit and stuff if, <laughs> if I needed to, I think. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's an easy soapbox to get up on. This all started from the Bernanke thing, okay? Uh, dude can't qualify for a loan. Wah. Are credit standards and collateral standards and all this too tight right now? Nope. Wah. Um, it's exactly where it should be. The only trick you got left in your sleeve to make things more affordable to people is to offer some longer amortization that better suits the life expectancy of a structure in the U.S. today than the life expectancy of the structures in 1939 when they were building and rolling out these Fannie Mae loans. It wasn't reasonable to think that you could give a loan for 50 years and expect that people would uh, jack a home up and replace the foundation and plumbing and roof and reconstruct a whole house from underneath it. Uh, and we know now that they do. And especially because of Prop 13, they do. Your, your taxes are so dirt cheap, you're way better off to keep redoing that place that you've owned for 50 years than to have to scrap it and buy another one. So... Ah, I, I feel like it's a no brainer, but what do I know, man? I'm just, I just go to work every day. I don't, my dad, my daddy wasn't governor, so I don't, I have no ends, man. Um, guys, I do want to just remind you, um, first of all, if you're just joining us, the middle hour of the show was epic. We had Roger Fredrickson on. He's a local real estate attorney. Um, this guy is somebody that, um, could help you in so many ways. If you need his help, um, go ahead and, and reach out to him. The, I dropped the card, but now I got it back. Um, the number to his firm is 541-4900. And also it's frederickson.pick.com uh, is the web address. If you can't seem to make that work and um, need to get a hold of us, we'll get you the contact information. You can find us at 543-LOAN, which is 543-5626. Um, you know, interest rates are doing fine. Loan programs are doing better than ever. Um, we are... Uh, uh? I was just going to say, we've, uh, we're have we getting ready to roll out some promotion of a great first-time homebuyer program, which That's is right. fitting for what we've been discussing. We'll talk about that quite a bit on the show next week. We got a, we got a new program here that we're really excited about that's going to create some real affordability, honestly, for first-time homebuyers and also uh, people to refinance into some better uh, program out of you know perhaps the loan you have. But at any rate... Um, 
we'll talk more about that stuff next week. If you guys have anything at all you want to explore loan related, uh, give us a call. We're always available 543 loan, which is 543-5626 or centralcoastlending.com. Um, we'd like to sit down and get to know you and your scenario and, and, you know, tell you you're good where you are, or these are options for you. So we like options. Hope you do too. Give us a call. Let us help you. We will be back next week for more Mortgage Matters. Thanks so much for being with us.